Open your Bibles. Would you open your Bibles? John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 14 through 18 today. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The scripture, as always, is up here on the screen beside me so that you can follow along. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you want to use that, you can use your iPhone, your iPad. I'll wait till I'll, I hear pages stop turning because we want to be together. In John chapter 1, verse 14, from the Word of God, it says, And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, not the John that's writing, but John the Baptist, swear we'll get to him next week, okay? Not today, but next week. Bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. God, there is so much to be said in those verses that we just uh, read together. God, we even uh, affirm together just a simple Bible study principle that there is one interpretation of those verses and many applications. And so my prayer today is that the interpretation would come through loud and clear. And then as we seek to apply it to a specific area of our lives, God, would you illuminate your scriptures? Would you convict, call us to yourself, God, and continue to form us and to the likeness of Christ as we submit to your spirit together. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. Well, here's, here's a news flash for you. I don't know uh, if this is news to you, but, but, but here it is. You ready? Everybody prepare yourself emotionally. Here it is. Christianity is exclusive. Did you know that? It really is. Now, all groups are by nature exclusive. Stick with me here. I cannot register for both the liberal and the conservative party in Canada. If you register for the liberal party and then you try to register for the conservative party, somebody's going to kick you out because they exclude folks who kind of, you know, are on both sides of that equation. If I tried to go to your gym or your condo association or your country club and I did not pay my dues, would they include me or exclude me? They would exclude me. All groups by nature are exclusive. If I hosted a PETA event at my house, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and I served surf and turf and wore a mink coat, they would kick me out because they exclude people like me. In the same way, Christianity is by nature exclusive. There are some core beliefs, some foundational truths, some bedrock things that as a group of people, Christians historically have believed. They are Bible truths. And one of them is what we're talking about today. And it's the incarnation. The incarnation simply means this, that God became man. The incarnation simply means this, that God became Man, there we go. The incarnation simply means this, that God became man, that the word 
took on flesh. The word became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. And this is perhaps the, not just a, but the bedrock foundational truth that sets Christians aside from people of no faith background or Muslims or Jews or whatever else you want to take a look at. It sets us aside as Christians. We believe that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us that God became man in the incarnation. And it's fascinating to me. Listen very, very closely now. It's fascinating to me because the nature of the incarnation and who we believe Jesus is will cause us to disagree with other people, won't it? It makes Christianity exclusive. It says, look, if you don't believe this, that you, 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 you could be a moral person, a wonderful person. It doesn't mean you're stupid. doesn't mean anything. It just means you're not a Christian. Because biblical, historical Christianity affirms the incarnation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But at the very same time as it might cause conflict or disagreement between you and somebody else. Now watch this. It gives you a model for interacting with someone you disagree with. I'm going to say that a different way. Listen close. Our bedrock foundational conviction that God became flesh in Jesus is not just a conviction, but a model that shows us how to interact with those who do not share that conviction. So here's our question this morning. We're going to interpret and then apply the text with this question. Here we go. What does the incarnation teach us about interacting with those with whom we disagree? What does the incarnation teach us about interacting with those with whom we disagree? And Christian convictions don't stop at the incarnation, do they? They extend to things like the rights of the unborn. They extend to things like how we treat the marginalized and ostracized in our society. They extend to things like the biblical definition of marriage. And we don't always agree with folks on these issues, do we? So today, here's what I want to do. I want to use the incarnation as a framework that might help us understand how to interact with those with whom we disagree. And I want to do this for a couple reasons. One, it's because my wife lets me read her Facebook page sometimes. And there's a lot of disagreement going on on the Facebook. I don't have the Facebook. I barely have the interweb. Okay, but you have Facebook, and have you noticed that there's some disagreements going on on Facebook these days? Anybody, anybody seen that, or do you not have the same Facebook that I have? Are there different Facebooks? Is there different? It's just one. It's one Facebook, right? Okay, there's there's disagreements going on on Facebook all the time, from the recent executive order in the United States regarding immigration policy to abortion legislation in Canada, to whether or not police should be able to show up to the Pride Toronto page, or Pride Toronto parade. There are disagreements going on all the time, but it does not stop there. Parents. (laughs) You ever have disagreements with your children? Especially adult children? Yeah, some of you are like, (laughs) that's right. It's because your children and you were raised in a different environment, in a different culture. You tried to instill your values in them, but their world is different than your world. And so they might disagree with you on the biblical definition of marriage. They might disagree with you on political convictions. They might even disagree with you when it comes to the authority of Scripture 
or the definition of the incarnation, whether or not God really did become man in Jesus, or whether or not he has any authority over their life. You might have a disagreement with them on occasion. University students, you ever disagree with your professors about the origins of the universe or the definition of ethics or where morality comes from? You see, disagreements happen all the time. They are everywhere, but listen, this is the thing. Today, I do not want to talk about any of those issues. We might at some point, if I, if I want to get fired. But no, that's beside the point. We might talk about those at some point, but the, because those are critical issues. But what's even more critical for me is learning from Jesus and learning from the incarnation how to interact with those with whom we dis. Agree. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to apply the incarnation to those conversations. So let's start with those who disagree about the incarnation itself. The Bible says that the incarnation is a mystery. Did you know that? The Bible uses this word over and over. It says that the incarnation and the crucifixion even itself is a mystery. And when the Bible says, you can pull that slide down. When the Bible says that something is a mystery, it doesn't mean like Sherlock Holmes, like you got to pick up a bunch of clues and you finally conclude what happens at the end based on all the clues you assembled. It doesn't mean like a mystery is a secret. The Greek word actually means the hidden foreordained plan of God that when it is manifested does not make sense to human minds. Let me say that one more time. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's talking about the hidden and foreordained plan of God that when it is manifested does not make sense to human minds. Take the crucifixion, for example. We look back and we read about that and we go, that does not make sense. That does not make sense. But the crucifixion was the foreordained plan of God from the beginning of time. Same thing as the incarnation. Like, okay, so God and man, like two essence is together in one. How does, what in the world, how does that work? I don't understand that. The Bible says it's a mystery, and it says it all over the place. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The word become flesh. Colossians 2 says God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Timothy actually says that elders in a church must hold to the mystery of the faith in good conscience, with a clear conscience. So the Bible, again, is not talking about a secret. It's not talking about, you know, Professor Plum with a screwdriver in the library or whatever it is. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the foreordained plan of God that when it's unfolded does not make sense to us. And so here's my question. When something does not make sense to us, what do we tend to do? One of two things. We say, well, that's, that, there's no way that's true. It doesn't make sense to me. That's, there's no way that's true. That's fairly arrogant, by the way, because that would make you God if you understood all things. The second thing that we do, and humankind has done this for centuries. This is not new to us. This has been going on for a very long time. Is we create alternate realities that might help explain or help us to explain things that we don't understand. For example, there was a time. When man did not understand that the earth is a sphere and it revolves around the sun. Did not understand the nature and function of gravity. 
And so mankind, humankind, came up with an alternate explanation as to why we stay on the earth, and that alternate explanation is called the world is flat, right? We create alternate explanations that help us understand things or help us to explain things that we don't otherwise understand. The same is true with the incarnation. The Bible clearly teaches that the word became flesh, God became flesh in Jesus. Jesus was not half God, half man, 100% man, 100% God in one person. The Bible clearly teaches that, but we go, I don't understand it, so I'm going to make up an alternate explanation in order to kind of describe that because I can't understand it. I'm going to reject what the Bible says and come up with an alternate explanation. And these alternate explanations have existed for centuries. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you in the first century what originally some of these things were called. I want to show you when the church rejected these doctrines and theologies regarding the incarnation. And I want to show you how those original alternate explanations, not biblical, not historical Christianity, alternate explanations of the incarnation live on even now in different faith systems. Now stick with me here because it will get important when it comes to how we interact with people with whom we disagree. The first faith system is called Gnosticism. That showed up actually before Jesus came around. Gnosticism, Gnosticism essentially taught this. Matter, things you can touch, taste, see, and smell is essentially evil. Spiritual things are essentially good. So Gnosticism said there is no way that a spiritual thing could become a human thing because that's a spiritual thing which is intrinsically good becoming matter which is intrinsically evil. Gnosticism was categorically rejected by the church from the 2nd through the 5th centuries. It was rejected multiple times because Gnosticism had multiple manifestations, different varieties of the way that it kind of came out. Gnosticism, though it was rejected by the church in the 2nd through the 5th centuries, lives on in things like the Unity Church and in Christian science. This is not a biblical view of the incarnation. Second, modalism. Modalism uh, was rejected in the third century by the church. Modalism essentially teaches this, that there is one God who shows up in different modes. The Father is kind of one mode, and then the Son is kind of one mode, and the Holy Spirit is kind of one mode. Have you ever heard that definition of the Trinity or the analogy of the Trinity? It's like H2O, that sometimes ice and sometimes steam and sometimes water. You ever heard that before? Not a bad analogy other than the fact that it's not biblical because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not three different modes of one God. God, this is Trinitarian theology. This is bedrock theology. This is not a biblical view, and the church rejected it in the third century, and you might think that it doesn't live on. It does live on in things like the United Pentecostal Church. The United Pentecostal Church would be modalist. Let's keep going. Adoptionism. Adoptionism was rejected categorically by the church at the Council of Nicaea in the third century. Adoptionism essentially teaches this. Jesus was so awesome and he lived such a great life that he was adopted as the heavenly father's son. He was not born the heavenly father's son. He was adopted the heavenly father's son. And that happened at his baptism. That's not a biblical, not a historical view. But it lives on in things like Unitarianism. This is what Unitarians believe. Let's keep going. Arianism teaches that Jesus had a beginning. But we already established in John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the 
word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, so he did not have a beginning. But Arianism, founded by a guy named Arius, clever name, isn't it, was categorically rejected in the 4th century by the church. But there are still sectarian views and sectarian, nominally Christian sects that would claim Arianism like Jehovah's Witnesses. Claim that Jesus had a beginning, that he was not in the beginning with God. Let's keep going. Polytheism, the church has rejected this always, by the way, uh, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Polytheism means there is many gods. And polytheism actually lives on in the LDS church, in the Mormon church. And some of you may not think this, but I want to read to you what Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, wrote. Listen close. He says, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father. And the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three distinct gods, unquote. That's polytheism. Now, that does not mean that these people are immoral. That does not mean that they're stupid. In fact, I've got family, very close family, that are founders, are members in the LDS church that are wonderful human beings and are even demonstrating to me very Jesus-like behavior through a difficult situation and difficult circumstance right now. It doesn't mean they're immoral. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means that this is not biblical, historical Christianity. So what is biblical, historical? Christianity. What does the Bible teach about the incarnation? The Bible teaches that the infinite one became finite. The invisible one became visible. The eternal one became bound by time. The omnipresent one became bound by space. The uncreated one became created being. The glorious one took on flesh and he had nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. The all-powerful one became a dependent baby. The king of kings became subject to a tyrannical ruler. The Lord of lords submitted to death, even death on a cross. The lion of Judah became a carpenter's son. To him belongs all authority, dominion, and power and glory, and he relinquished it all. Why? So that he could become flesh. Verse 18 says that he, that God who is not, no, that he made God knowable. That, that original word in the original language is, is the, where we get our word exegesis from. Exegesis, meaning Jesus is the story of God, the narrative of God. And he did it so he could stoop and look you in the eye and look me in the eye. So he could live the life we were meant to live, die the death that we were meant to die, and rise again only to lift us up with him. And you might disagree with someone in your life about some of those things. And here is where we derive our very first principle for interacting with those with whom we disagree. When it comes to disagreeing with people in your life about the incarnation or about other convictions you must have, we must first be incarnational. We must first be incarnational. Now listen close. 
This does not mean that you're a God and you will take on flesh. That is not what that means. Everybody understand that? Everybody get that? Super deal. I want to make sure that that is clear. What it means is that Jesus was willing to step across time and space to bridge the unbridgeable gap in order to have a relationship and a conversation with you and with me. I've been watching people all week talk about immigration policy in, uh, in the U.S., especially when it comes to the executive order that Trump just issued, and then it got revoked, and then he's trying to issue it again. I don't know if he's too busy playing golf or something, but he might issue it again. I don't know what the deal is there. And I've watched on Facebook uh, in particular, but even in conversations, people talk about that there are two sides to this issue. The one side is kind of keep them out, you know, close the borders and keep them out. And the other side is let them in. You know, we need to be a welcoming place. And, you know, this is U.S. now, not Canada. This is U.S. And, and I got a couple of problems with that. One is it is really oversimplified. <laughs> really oversimplified. Two is that the incarnation offers us a third option. Now listen so closely here. So I'm not talking about immigration policy. I'm talking about the incarnation. Now listen close. God did not sit in heaven and think, should I keep my borders closed or should I let them in? As if those were his only two options. You know what he did? He went and got them. That's what he did. He took on flesh and went after us, even when we disagreed with him, even when we were estranged from him, even when we rebelled against him, he put on flesh. So here's my question. And again, it's not about immigration policy. This is about using the incarnation as a model to interact with those with whom we disagree. Let me ask you a couple questions. Are you willing to step across the street to make God known to your neighbor, that's being incarnational. Jesus was willing to release eternal riches in order to make God known to you. Are you willing to release temporary riches to make God known to someone else? Jesus was willing to humble himself even to death and death on a cross in order to reconcile you to God. Where is your pride getting in the way of making God known to somebody else right now? Students, junior high, high school students, here's what this means. Being incarnational living incarnationally, especially with those with whom you disagree, and taking a cue from Jesus means getting up from your lunch table and walking over to the nerd table and sitting down. That's what that means. Young adults, Tyndale students and people in your 20s, here's what this means. It means that you might not think you got a lot of money, but you got a whole lot more money than 98% of the world. And it means sacrificing temporary riches in order to make God known to somebody else and sacrificing your time. Parents of students, adult children, parents of adult children, 
when you disagree with them, are you criticizing your child from afar and judging them from afar? Or are you stepping across the gap that's between you and that child in order to look them in the eye and understand their point of view? Like, I'm gonna get fired up this morning and preach. I'm just telling you. Because if we are not incarnational, we are on a grand adventure in missing the point. Because chronologically speaking now, chronologically speaking, what's the first thing Jesus did? He took on flesh and bridged the gap. You might look at me, oh, Lucas, I'm really gracious, man. I'm really truthful. That's what the Bible's just talking about. Yeah, I'm really gracious, really truthful. Ain't nobody knows if you're not incarnational. It doesn't make a difference to anybody. Unless you're willing to step across the room and look somebody in the eye and say, God loves you. And I'm taking a cue from Jesus, even when he disagreed with me, even if I disagree with you, I'm going to wrap my arms around you. We have to be incarnational. There is no other way around it. I'm going to give you 10 really easy ways to do it. You ready? 10 really easy ways to be incarnational. You pick one. One. Join a parents group like the PTA. I don't know if they have PTA here. Or a community activist group or a condo association governance board in order to interact with people who don't know Jesus, people that you might disagree with in order to show them you love them. And you might say, Luke, man, I don't have time to do that. Okay, quit one of the nine Bible studies you're in and do it. Take your kids to community swimming lessons, not to a Christian playgroup. Playgroups aren't Christian, by the way. They don't have souls. <laughs> That was unintentionally funny. Here's one way to be incarnational. Sell your house and move to a neighborhood in the greater Toronto area that needs Jesus really bad, like Church in Wellesley. And I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not kidding. This summer, move your barbecue to your front yard. It's a way to be incarnational. Host a happy hour or a dessert for your neighbors Become an international worker. Yes, that means missionary, and yes, that means moving to a foreign country. You will never have to bridge quite so great a gap as Jesus did, so don't panic. Join a life group at Bayview Glen Church. You know why this is why we do life groups and not Bible studies? We do life groups because they're incarnational. We do life groups because they meet in neighborhoods. We do life groups because they have a context for mission. Receive life from God, share life together, and bring life to the community around us. They're incarnational. Junior and senior high students, I already told you this, go sit at a different lunch table. Older generation, older generation, get to know somebody younger than you. Get to know the people that work at your favorite restaurant or bar or coffee shop. Go back there often, get involved in their life, and tip well. Coach your kid's soccer team. Join a community sports team. Introduce yourself to your neighbors. Invite another family who doesn't know Jesus over for dinner. Buy, your coffee, buy coffee for your coworkers or buy donuts for your coworkers every Friday. Now listen really close. I'm gonna say this twice so it sinks in and then we'll move on, I promise. Stop yelling at you. Just as God's message to us and his mission for us would have fallen flat without the incarnation. Our message to the world of God's extraordinary grace will fall flat if we are not incarnational. 
period. First and foremost, we must be incarnational when it comes to interacting with folks with whom we disagree. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 14, here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm. Full of. Great word in the original Greek, pleorma. It means full to overflowing. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not 50-50. Not a nice balance. 100% of both. Because they're bedfellows. They're inextricably bound. Both grace and truth truth. So when we interact with those with whom we disagree about anything, we must be both gracious and truthful. We must be both gracious and truthful. We must learn to say the hard thing, but to say it tenderly. Parents of adult children, People in, in your, in your uh, schools, and in your communities, and in your uh, jobs, when you're interacting with people that you disagree with, you have to learn to be both gracious and truthful. Now, check it. All of us lean one way or the other, don't we? I'll give you a guess as to which one I lean towards. Yeah, everybody's like, Truthful. You just yelled at us. It's truthful. I know it's truthful. Yes, it's truthful. I lean towards truthful. I've got to grow in grace. But some of us compromise truth because we're leaning into grace. But Jesus, Jesus, check it out, was full to overflowing of both grace and truth. Isn't that great? That's good for us. That's good news. And so when you're interacting with someone and having a conversation with someone with whom you disagree, we must learn to be both gracious, gracious and truthful. I want to give you four quick principles to learn how to be both gracious and truthful. They're up here on the screen, and you can jot these down as you go. Here we go. Here's how to be gracious and truthful. Be discerning but not judging. Be discerning but not judging. See, the discerning person can say, you know what, what I'm hearing, that's not a biblical conviction. That's not historical Christianity regarding the incarnation, regarding the rights of the unborn, regarding the biblical definition of marriage. I know that that's, that does not square with the biblical text. They're able to identify that. But they don't judge someone else, look down on them, get condescending and patronizing, and judge that other person for holding that conviction. Discerning but not judging. Embracing but not clinging. You ever feel like somebody, like when you first meet them, and you start talking about things that you disagree about, and they have just wrapped their arms around you, and you feel really loved, and then they become like a boa constrictor, <laughs> and they get tighter and tighter and tighter in that conversation? We've got to learn, men and women of God, to wrap our arms around other people, but not cling to them and try to force them into something that they don't believe. That's the Spirit of God's job. Keep going, engaging but not controlling. Parents, especially parents of adult children, learning how to engage with your university student or engage with your adult child or to engage with your child who's married and have, has children and your grandchildren, learning how to engage but not control them. You cannot manage their behavior, period. You can't manage their behavior. You know why? You know how I know that? Because the Bible says that Moses gave the law, but Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. 
Moses could only command righteousness and ain't nobody could do it. But Jesus Christ was able to produce righteousness from the inside because he was full of grace and truth. So engage with them, but don't try to control them because you'll always fail and you'll be miserable and be frustrated and you'll come into my office crying and I don't want that and neither do you probably. Be accepting but not condoning. Accepting but not condoning. Here's what this means. I love you, I accept you, but I don't condone your behavior. I love you, I accept you, I embrace you, but I do not condone your behavior. Now listen, I want you to know that most people in the world think that Christians are not great at being accepting. Not great at being embracing. They know what we believe. They know our convictions. They, they know what we, what we think. They know all kinds of different things. But a lot of times what they don't know about us is that we are accepting. We're not condoning, but we're accepting. Sometimes you get in a little bit of a pickle. Sometimes you just need to pray and ask the Spirit of God to lead you in order to be full of grace and truth. I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll move on. Uh, a couple years ago, Amy and I got a call from a very good friend of ours who grew up in a, in a Christian home, in a very conservative uh, Christian home, and struggled with his sexuality his whole life. And when he got into adulthood and he got into uh, advanced education and graduate, postgraduate work, very, very smart guy, uh, ended, up <coughs> ended up coming to the conclusion, he said, look, I'm, I'm gay, there's no, there's no way around that. Hmm. And I'm going to live a gay lifestyle. And he now has a partner that they've been together for a number of years. So he called us and said, hey, I'm going to be in Toronto. And uh, I said, great, man. We would love to get together. We'd love to see you. We'd love to meet your partner. And he said, oh, that's great. And I said, in fact, where are you guys staying? And he said, well, we're staying downtown in, uh, in a hotel down there because we've got a convention conference down there. And I said, well, if you want to get up where there's actually snow, uh, you can come up to my house and, and you guys can stay in the basement. We have a guest room in the basement. And listen, the first words out of his mouth, listen so closely now. Are you sure? Are you sure? And he repeated it. Luke, are you sure? You know why? Because he knows I do not condone his behavior, doesn't he? And he knows what I think about the biblical definition of marriage. He knows the truth. You know what he needed to hear? Grace. Grace. Look, some of you, you might disagree with what I did, and that's fine. That's fine. It's okay with me. But, but here is my exhortation and encouragement to you. Most of the world knows what we're against. What they need to know is what we're for. We're for Jesus and we're for them. We want to introduce you to Jesus because that would be great for you. When interacting with those with whom you disagree, seek to be full of grace and truth. Keep going. From his fullness. Here we go. Next slide. From his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace. I love the NIV translation of this verse. It says, from his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Don't you love that? 
we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So what is the grace we've received and what is the grace that's already been given? Watch, watch. For the law was given through Moses. That's the grace already given. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the grace we've received in the place of the grace already given. So why was the law gracious? I thought that God was holy in the Old Testament. I thought that God was a judge in the Old Testament. I thought that God was mad all the time in the Old Testament. <laughs> Not true. God's giving of the law to the nation of Israel was an act of his grace for two reasons. One, it kept the nation of Israel from doing really stupid stuff. Like, don't, you know, cut the fleece off of that thing, the sheep, and wear it immediately. Wash it first. Because if you do, you're going to get sick and die. That's a gracious thing to do. The law was gracious. You know why else the law was gracious? Because it revealed to both the nation of Israel and to us that we were in desperate need of a Savior. In desperate need of someone who would extend grace to us. Grace in place of grace already given. So when you are interacting with people with whom you disagree, we must be mindful of the grace we received. You and I are rebellious, decayed sinners saved by grace through faith alone, restored and given new life and being made new each and every day only because of God's character. And watch this, watch this. Listen close. Look up at me here. Look, 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 look. It could have been otherwise, couldn't it? It could have been otherwise. God could have left you to your own devices. God could have chosen not to put you in the family that you grew up in. That was an act of his grace. God could have allowed you to die in that car wreck or because you had that heart condition. That was an act of his grace. God might not have brought that person into your life that said to you, you know what, I'd love to take you to church sometime. And you thought, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And now you're here every Sunday and singing and raising your hand and everything else. That was an act of his grace. When you are interacting with people with whom you disagree, you remember grace has been extended to you. So you extend grace to them. Undeserved favor. It might be their only chance to see Jesus and know him by the grace of that you extend to them. Last one and we'll be done. Here we go. Look up here on the screen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. That's back to verse 14. I love this word dwelt. Because if you say it 10 or 12 times over and over. Do it on the way home. It starts to sound like it's not a word anymore. You ever do that before? Dwelt, 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 dwelt. I don't think that's spelled correctly. That's really not a word. The other reason I love it. That's kind of a side reason. The other reason I love it. Is because in the original language. What this means is the word became flesh. And pitched his tent among us. He, he, the word. The personal Word, the eternal God, the uncreated one, temporarily lived in a tent. That's what Paul calls the body. Took on flesh and dwelt among us. This word is actually tabernacled among us. God tabernacled among us. 
And see, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a literal tent that God instructed the nation of Israel to build. And the tabernacle was specific size and specific shape, and it held all kinds of things. But the primary role of the tabernacle was to be the center of the nation of Israel. Both the physical center, because when they camped, they would put the tabernacle right in the middle, and all the tribes of Israel would encamp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle moved, they would move, and they would keep the tabernacle in the center. It was also the center of their worship. See, any time they brought their worship before God, they brought their sacrifice before God, they brought their praise before God, they would come to the tabernacle because it was right in the center. They kept the tabernacle at the center of everything they did, everything they thought, every choice that they made. And so if Jesus tabernacled among us, we must keep Jesus at the center. We must keep Jesus at the center. He's got to be in the middle of each and every conversation. Don't get caught up on this peripheral stuff. Well, what do you think about the age of the earth? 10,000 years or billions of years? Hey, what do you think about Jesus? How about that, huh? Well, you know, Christians believe that uh, you can handle snakes, can't you? (sighs) Weird ones do, yeah, but... Let's talk about Jesus. We want to keep Jesus at the center of our conversations when we are interacting with people with whom we disagree. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the fact that he hung out with prostitutes all the time? What do you think that he hung out with drunkards so much that they actually looked at him and go, you're a glutton. You're a drunkard yourself. What do you think about the fact that he gave his life for you and me? What do you think about the fact that he was a perfect perfect sacrifice and substitute what do you think about the fact that he is waiting for you with nail scarred hands to come to him so that he could lavish grace upon grace already given not any of this peripheral stuff not any of this secondary stuff both here in our church and and in personal conversations Jesus must be smack dab in the middle at all times As a theologian I love to read once said, if Christ is the burning sun at the center of your universe, all the other planets just seem to fall right into place. Men and women of God, the incarnation is not just a out there theological truth, although it is theological truth. It is instructive for us when it comes to interacting with friends and family children and co-workers and co-laborers classmates siblings with whom we disagree be incarnational Jesus was be full of grace and truth Jesus was be mindful of the grace that Jesus has already extended you and keep Christ at the center Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and then we're going to close by inviting Jesus to remain at the center of our hearts and our homes and our church. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you bridged an unbridgeable gap. The eternal one, the uncreated one came in the flesh. Teach us, God, to be incarnational. Teach us to be full of grace and truth. And God, when we try to nudge you out of the center, we pray even as we're going to sing that you would remain steadfast and fixed and not allow us to nudge you. 
and remind us even now of the amazing grace that you've extended to each one of us. God, that we would continue to receive from you. Jesus, you are full to overflowing and may you overflow into our hearts and homes today and this week. God's people together said, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together. Thank <laughs> you.